0: During development, all animals are vulnerable. So how does the experience one encounters while developing actually impact the adult life? And can these effects be passed down to their grandchildren? Can overstressing due to say environmental change be detrimental to the survival of the population? Welcome to Boiling Point. Your host today is me, Anastasia, and I am chatting to postdoctoral fel- research fellow, Dr. Andi Grino. Andi studies how developmental stress impacts physiology, behavior, and the general survival of wild and captive birds. Welcome to the show, Andi.
1: Great, thank you for having me, Anastasia. Oh,
0: thank you so much. So can you tell me a little bit more uh, about your research?
1: Yeah. So the majority of my research has examined how exposure to stressors during development can impact animals, both in the immediate sense, but um, more so throughout their lifetime. And in particular, I focused on how exposure to the stress hormone, corticosterone, can affect birds throughout their lifetime if they're exposed to it during these critical developmental periods. So from what I'm hearing is you take little chicks and you stress them out. (laughs) Is that it? Uh, Yeah. So, you know, in order to understand the effects of developmental stress on Mm -hmm. animals, one of the things we do do is to expose them to elevated levels of the stress hormone, corticosterone. Mm -hmm. Um, We do that within a biologically meaningful range. And so we're exposing them to uh, amounts of the hormone that they would be exposed to under natural conditions in in free living environments. Mm -hmm. And so it's a biologically relevant way to look at the effects of developmental stress on birds. Right, so you're not like, you know, stressing
0: them out with something they would never have encountered in the wild before. You're just kind of replicating it as a scientific experiment, right?
1: That's exactly right, yeah. So nestlings and other developing animals can be exposed to elevated levels of stress hormones. Either from direct exposure from their mums, um, if they're um, like from a mammal, if they're being gestated um, or through deposition in the eggs through oviparous animals like lizards and birds. So you're saying the stress can happen while the
0: uh, like it's an embryo, while it's it's still developing?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yep. So prenatally or postnatally. Um, And so that can happen. uh, Developing animals have dampened stress responses, often compared to adult animals. And that physiological system that regulates the release of stress hormones develops as animals develop. But at certain periods in their postnatal development, they're capable of releasing stress hormones. And so if they're exposed to inclement weather, very hot temperatures, uh, predation, pressure or sibling competition, they can experience their own endogenous increases in the stress hormones that can then go on to affect their physiology in the short term or in the long term. So what would be the evolutionary benefit of that? Because
0: I'm thinking that why not stress the parent only and never stress the embryo, right? Why is the embryo having any sort of stress response at all?
1: That's such a that's such a good question and I I'd say that I think that is one of the most timely questions in the field of you know this small field of comparative endocrinology for those of us who study stress physiology is what is the evolutionary significance of um the responses of developing animals to stress hormones and there's there's several leading hypotheses right now one of them is that exposure to stress hormones during development or other types of stressors induces phenotypic responses that help prepare those developing animals to uh, survive and reproduce in the postnatal environment. So in situations where they're exposed to stressors because they're in a stressful uh, developmental environment, and if that environment is reflective of what they're going to experience as adults, it can potentially induce changes that will help them to increase their fitness in that adult environment. Oh, so it's almost like predicting the
0: future, right? The embryo is stressed and then it's like, oh, as an adult, I'll also probably be stressed. So might as well develop, you know, to, I guess, recognize the stress and therefore, um, you know, almost, I guess, have the hormone uh, balance for it, I guess, because right, they'll they'll just have a different threshold then, right? If they do experience stress, is, is that correct? Like they'll have more stress hormone throughout their lifetime?
1: That's exactly right. So so this, this hypothesis, it's called, um, it's called the developmental matching hypothesis, mm. and it can work in several ways. One, as you describe, is that exposure to even very small periods of developmental stress during development can permanently change, the neuroendocrine pathway that controls the release of stress hormones. And so that means that, as you've described, the animals exposed to stress during development as adults will release higher levels of stress hormones in response to stressors. And these effects have been replicated across taxonomic groups and studies, and they've even been shown to have um, intergenerational effects. And so if your parents are exposed to stressors during development, your offspring you, we might also be able to detect those effects in your offspring, even if you yourself aren't exposed to stressors when you're gestating those offspring. So it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing to me that that these effects are so powerful, really, because we we know that you know animals are quite flexible in a lot of physiological responses, and yet here is a really good example where we see a bit of inflexibility in a system that is quite important for uh, survival and reproduction. Mm-hmm. What kind of um stressors do you
0: refer to that embryos can experience hmm.
1: yeah, so um well, I can tell you about one of my one of my favorite studies that that gets at this idea of environmental matching showed that um that parents exposed to predation pressure um uh produce offspring that have um different morphological traits that help them essentially to fledge quicker. And the idea is that in a high predator environment, it's better for nestlings to fledge as quickly as possible to get out of the nest where they have more of a chance of being eaten.
0: I mean, that's almost common sense, right? That just feels like evolution has, made common sense. Like, hey, you know what? There's a lot of predators around. It's better to mature, develop, and
1: get out of there as fast as you can, right? Yeah. Yeah, It does make a lot of sense. And I think it's a really nice example of a type where we might say, well, we know that developmental stress can decrease growth and body size. And that seems like a bad thing, Mm -hmm. right? Smaller A smaller baby bird is a bad thing but that actually that's not always necessarily the case and that there are situations where it will help them to fledge faster to start to fly faster compared to heavier um, uh, conspecifics or whatnot. Mm I do think you know we have to be a bit careful in our interpretation of these things because that's one example of where it might make good evolutionary sense but one of the main criticisms of the developmental matching hypothesis is that For it to be valid or sort of broadly biologically applicable, the 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 postnatal environment has to be, uh, the prenatal environment, excuse me, has to be predictive of the postnatal environment. And I think especially in Australia, we're very well aware of the fact that uh, environments can be quite unstable and change rapidly and sometimes drastically. And especially in short living animals, that it might not be the case that the postnatal environment is often Um, represented by the prenatal environment that's true so if that's the case right you're kind of experiencing a
0: lot of stress as an embryo you're you know going through all these developmental physiological changes for kind of no reason right because you, you might not actually experience it in your adult life and is that detrimental then to that individual
1: Yes. Yeah, so that's that would be one of the alternative hypotheses, which is essentially just that that these animals are making the best of a of a bad job. Mm. You know, too bad, so sad. It's you were exposed to poor developmental conditions and mm. higher levels of stress hormones and you're going to have these sort of long-term physiological and behavioral effects and that maybe in some environments it doesn't matter like if you were to fledge into an environment that has very rich resources and few predators. Maybe it, it doesn't actually ultimately make that much of a difference in your survival and reproduction, but if you were to enter a postnatal environment that is quite harsh, you would maybe have um much lower fitness compared to an animal that wasn't exposed to that stressor during development, for example. Excellent. And when you refer to fitness, what is it that you mean? Uh, So I just mean uh, survival and reproduction. So how long an animal lives for, and then within that time period, how many offspring they produce that then recruit to the next generation to have their own offspring.
0: Oh, excellent. Yeah. And, um, What other kind of stressors um, can, you know, can developing embryos uh, experience? Because you did mention temperature. So I'm kind of thinking, you know, climate change is probably a huge stressor, right? Especially in Australia, like you mentioned.
1: I think so. I think that's a question that a lot of people are interested in right now because it's incredibly relevant. And I think. You know, I think a lot of people who do climate change models are interested in incorporating physiological responses into those models now to try and have some way of predicting how animals will respond to changes in temperature physiologically and how that might affect their reproduction and survival. And I, I think understanding how temperature affects uh, the stress hormones is is particularly important given the role that those hormones can have in determining. Um, life history strategies and uh, fitness and things like that. So like, why is
0: something like rising temperature? Why would that be stressful? You know, for humans, it's like, Oh, let's let's go to the beach more often, right? Why would something Mm -hmm. like for a baby bird? Why would that be really stressful?
1: Yeah, you know, you can think of the stress hormones, which are um, cumulatively referred to as glucocorticoids. So in humans, the analogous hormone is cortisol, which a lot of people may have heard of. Mm-hmm. And then um, in lizards and reptiles and rodents, it's corticosterone, which is what we've been talking about. Y- you can think of the glucocorticoid hormones as just these sort of um, as as general endocrine mediators of um, an organismal response to a situation that's sort of not ideal, right? Mm. And so we'll experience, you know, you and I, for example, we we'll are experienced cortisol spikes during um, stressful interaction, like if you're stuck in traffic or you're or you're, nervous- live <laughs> you're live on radio, you're um, live on radio. But you know, in, from an evolutionary perspective, animals will experience increase in um, glucocorticoid, glucocorticoid hormones in response to Um, temperature disturbances, other types of weather changes, um, whether or not they um, are starving or food's not available, predation attempts and things like that. And the the role of these hormones is to um, increase available energy, which allows animals to change their physiology and behavior in ways to alleviate uh, whatever in their environment has changed that is making it hard for them to maintain homeostasis. That's like the most boring way of describing stress. <laughs> but I think that that's, that that's pretty accurate. Um, so, you know, for us, for example, we like going to the beach when it's warm, but not if it's too warm, that doesn't feel very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And we'll have a physiological response that is going to motivate us, whether or not we're really aware of it, it's going to motivate us to try and seek somewhere that's slightly cooler to try and take in some fluids Um, or to change our situation in a way that makes it a bit more comfortable for us.
0: I see. So, Hmm. uh, I mean, everybody, I mean, not everybody, I, I guess I shouldn't generalize. But for example, for me, stress is a bad thing right? You want to avoid stress at all times. I think that's impossible. I don't think we we can fully avoid stress, nor can animals. Um, But is there a way that animals particularly mediate their stress? Or is it kind of like, you know, like you said, best of a bad job, like you're just kind of stuck with it?
1: I think, you know, I think stress is sort of like pain in a way, you know, it's not a pleasant thing. But it's indicative that, we are in a situation that is it's not good for our bodies for example and so it feels quite uncomfortable to be stressed but I, I think that it's you know if you think about it as just a physiological regulator of an ideal state then it makes a bit more sense why we're why we're experiencing that because we know we know from our own lives it's like when we're really stressed it means that something's probably a bit out of balance in our lives um and that we should probably make some changes and I think you can, you can kind of, I mean, we're so hesitant always to draw these comparisons between humans and animals, but I think that you can, you can, you can make that comparison in this situation. Um, Mm. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like everybody,
0: you know, understands when you're tired, you need to go to sleep, right? mm. When you're hungry, you need to eat, but when you're stressed, there's so many different conflicting ideas of what you can do to lower your stress right yeah. and so like would animals I guess my question is do animals know how to deal with stress?
1: <laughs> i That's a tough question because I, I think that I think that instinctively well I think that physiologically the changes that happen in our bodies tell us as humans so I'll actually talk about humans and not animals I think that tells us what we need to do but I think that we live in you know, we're like circus chimps, really. So it's like, we're not always able to do what those physiological changes are, are sort of prepping our body to do. And so, you know, for example, glucocorticoids increase energy availability. And one of the really good ways of managing stress as a human is to exercise. And so if you're not feeling very good, because things are very stressful, a really good thing is just to go jump on a treadmill for 20 minutes. And what that does in part is it helps to burn sure up all of that energy that you know that your liver has created for you in preparation to deal with the tiger that it thinks is about to attack it but it's not tigers in our modern world it's concerns about finances or job stressors or partner stressors or things like that mm-hmm. and so I, I think that you know i think that there are ways of, of sort of dealing with stressors in in the in our day-to-day life that If we understand the physiology of a stress response that um help us to deal with it a bit better yeah oh that's wonderful i i just had a an image of of a little baby bird
0: meditating after it was too stressed (laughs) (laughs) i think that's very cute (laughs) um so when you say you stress uh animals out how do you do that like do you actually inject more um sorry what is it cortis no it's not cortisol because cortisol is human right it is,
1: yeah. So it's corticosterone, which which isn't a strangely challenging word to say. Especially it's so like, straight, like on so, the radio. It's stressing me out, okay, Andy. Uh, no, no, we <laughs> the word is stressing that. me out. <laughs> I'll give you, I'll give you, like the trick is that we refer to cortisol and corticosterone cumulatively as cort. You can just abbreviate okay. them both. which is a bit easier to say. Okay. Um, So yeah,
0: do you inject them with court or do you, you know, put up a rubber snake to
1: try and uh, be like, oh, there's a predator and then, you know, stress them out that way? Yeah, that's a a really good question. And you could essentially do both things. So if you were interested specifically in how predation pressure stressed out animals, then you would want to use a biologically relevant cue, like, you know, increasing perceived predation threats. For me, a lot of my work has just focused on manipulating levels of court um, directly. And the idea of that is that it's a generalized, sort of a, it indicates it's sort of a generalized stressor. So the majority of my work has been done with baby birds. R- right now I work with lizards, actually. I've, I've crossed over the taxonomic divide. <laughs> um, so with, with baby birds, what I've done is uh, I've just fed them. Cort dissolved in oil. And so because they have this tendency to beg to be fed, you can essentially get them to gape at you. And then you can just deliver um, a a bolus of uh, quart dissolved in oil into their little mouths. And that increases quarts endogenously in a biologically meaningful way.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, With lizards right now, we're doing something a bit different. So we are dosing eggs, not Uh, baby lizards Uh, and we're doing that by just applying a topical solution onto their eggs and that uh, goes through the eggshell into the yolk and um, has direct effects on the developing embryo so -hmm. that's that's worked really well, actually, oh, that's- and that's, that's what I'm working on right now. Oh, wow. And yeah. let's clarify, right? Uh, is it the same
0: in lizards where the yolk, there? nothing actually develops out of the yolk. The yolk is just nutrition, right, mm. for the embryo. That was something that when I found out was shocking to me because anytime you know as a little kid or whatever you'd be making you know sunny side eggs and you'd be thinking that the yellow yolk is what the embryo develops out of and actually that's just a nutritional ball for it you know and and that's why that that, that's what they eat um so when it comes to the baby birds right you said that you would actually feed them but wouldn't you know seeing a human stress them out already
1: Hmm. Yeah. So we, we do account for that because we have a control group that we will just feed a solution of oil to. Oh, I thought maybe you, you said that you dress up as a baby bird to pretend (laughs) like you're their mom. (laughs) If only that worked, science would be a
0: bit more fun. just Um, on the going out around in a big bird costume?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't, I don't do that. We do, we do handle them directly. You sort of need to, um, and you know it's 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 likely that you know they don't want to be handled by a person it's likely that 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 has some amount of distress for them an interesting thing about stress hormones is that it takes three minutes before they become detectable in blood or before elevated levels become detectable and so you can think of the glucocorticoid or court response is sort of the second line stress response. And so you, you probably heard of epinephrine and norepinephrine or the, the fight or flight response. And so that's kind of our, our first line response to stressors that will motivate immediate action. And these and are then, not court. Those are not, Th- they're not hormone. considered. Okay. Those okay. are, those are different hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, Court is released from the adrenal glands and it takes about three minutes before um. Uh, three minutes after an animal sort of recognizes the stressor before it increases levels of cortisol in the plasma. And that's because it's, um, it's regulated by a neuroendocrine pathway that just takes a few minutes to sort of, you know, kick into gear really. And so Mm -hmm. it's sort of the second line of defense when it comes to stressors. Mm -hmm. And so when we handle the animals, the goal is to handle them in as little time as possible with the idea of minimizing disturbance or hopefully having, you know, a very, um, or not having any effect on their stress levels.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah. then do you monitor these uh, animals for pretty much the rest of their life? Or do you, you know, check up on them every now and again? Like are these wild caught or are these lab animals? I guess I have two questions in there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it just depends on the study. A lot of, a lot of what I've done has been with zebra finches in captivity. I think some of my favorite projects really have been with captive zebra finches. And for those studies, the animals are manipulated during development, and then depending on what we're interested in, we'll measure any number of things over their lifetime. Or in in one particular study, we did um, transgenerationally as well. And you know, some of my work has been interested in looking at how exposure to stress during development affects uh, reproductive strategies. So do males pursue a tactic where they are more parental or where they are sexier and they try and get as many matings as possible? Um, you know, or how it affects things like body composition throughout life, or even how uh, exposure to stress during development affects mitochondrial function. Um, and so it just it just really depends on what I'm in, you know, what the particular study is. Mm-hmm. I think my my sort of dream research it would be to manipulate developmental conditions in free living animals and then to track them throughout their lifetime to see the effects that that treatment has. On their survival, their reproductive success, and things like that, mm. I, I think to do that while I'm draining, you know, I think it. I, I like the idea of sort of an island population where animals aren't, um, where you know there's not a lot of immigration into or out of the population, and you can sort of really keep a really detailed record of how animals are coping throughout their lives. So I think you know. If, That that would be a project that I would like to do at at some point in the future. (laughs) Well, hopefully, that will come to fruition at some point. It's a bit. That's a bit harder. But it's a bit harder of a project to do than doing stuff in the lab.
0: <laughs> that's that's true, right? And and a lot less control of having <laughs> you know wild populations, of course. Now there was yeah. something interesting that you mentioned that um you actually study them like transgenerationally. So yeah. does can stress affect the grand offspring, like the, pretty much the grandchildren of the uh, parents, or or the embryo that's being stressed?
1: Yeah. So I that was um a PhD student I worked with um recently did a study on that and we looked at so technically i think i misspoke it's technically intergenerational and some people get very picky about this so if you look at if you stress out parents and then measure the grand offspring that's intergenerational and if you manage to measure the generation after that i think that's technically transgenerational oh i see okay and i just said that on radio and now it's committed but um so that's okay i don't even
0: know so you know (laughs) i'm glad that we defined it though that i think that's that's great
1: well the cool thing is is that as you pointed out that it's you know it's parents being exposed to an environmental condition and that we're detecting physiological effects in their grand offspring in absence of that environmental condition and that that's i i find that quite Amazing, and there are perhaps a lot of examples of that that we see in science. But I think that we're seeing it—the fact that we're seeing it when it comes to stress physiology—I um, I think that's that's quite an interesting result. Mm-hmm. And if we look at some of the medical literature, we know or we we suspect that a lot of those changes are being uh, regulated by epigenetic modifications. And what does that mean? Um, so that those are changes to genes that are affecting. Um, the production of gene products. So for in the example with glucocorticoid physiology, there are, in mouse models, there are changes that happen to the promoter region of um, the gene that uh, produces the receptor for glucocorticoids. Mm-hmm. And so hormones only work physiologically if they have a receptor associated with them. Mm-hmm. So by changes in the number of receptor, then changes the sort of effects that hormones can have on animals. Oh, wow. Um,
0: hmm. So I wanted to to bring something to your attention. So th- just this was a while ago that um, I did some field work and I was oh. working on on frogs. But there were some people who were working on birds and they were actually looking at stress in birds. And I wonder if you know about this as well, like if this is a universal thing or if this just happened in Canada. But they stress the birds out with rubber duckies. <laughs> <laughs> And apparently, um, it was a method that was used by other ornithologists, and that's how they stressed the birds out. They would put little rubber duckies, like, somewhere around their house, like, you know, their little birdhouse, and then they would just observe them.
1: If, if I had to guess, I'd say that they would describe the rubber ducky as a novel object. And yes! Would...
0: <laughs> You're right. They would, as a scientific term, it was a novel object, but I saw it and I was like, guys, why do you have so many rubber duckies? <laughs>
1: That is some, That is a part of science that I get a little bit tickled by is when some of the things we use. I mean, it's like a novel object is a novel object. A rubber ducky is novel to wild birds, but it is also yeah, quite yeah. hilarious. That's true. <laughs> I mean, it is also so, so, so cute. <laughs> it is. So oh. it's so, look, a quarter quarter. Yeah, It's a general stressor to things like predators, restricted food, or rubber duckies. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The the worst stressor of them all, I assume. The worst
1: stressor,
0: <laughs> but but speaking of stressors, I'm I'm really sorry. I know we're running out of time, but I just like to ask one more question. Of just in terms like thinking about stressors, do you think in in wild populations, um, birds that are in the city are perhaps more stressed out mm. than
1: birds in you know the
0: forest?
1: Let's say. That's a really fun question, and I think that. Urban ecology and how animals cope with uh, anthropogenic disturbances is a really important question right now. And I think that there are, to sort of try and be brief about it, there's two possibilities. um, Well, several possibilities. One is that animals that end up retained in urban areas have a greater ability to cope with disturbances for, for whatever reason that might be. And so that they actually don't experience higher levels of glucocorticoids or stress hormones in response to people for example um and so you can think of house sparrows as a really good example house sparrows live everywhere all over the world and they just seem like they just like do not just like they just seem fine all the time they just thrive everywhere (laughs) yeah but then other animals might be susceptible to anthropogenic disturbances and we have seen evidence of that in things like populations of penguins that are visited by tourists or bird um, communities that are uh, close to roads that have a lot of traffic um, and so I think that it's, it's in general, very species specific, but I do think that there are a lot of examples where um, anthropogenic disturbances in the form of just people or noise from traffic or from mining activity um, can increase glucocorticoids. And it's, that's really important information for conservation, I think, because we often think of, you know, national parks, for example, as these very pristine areas, but if there are roads that go right by them that have a lot of traffic and a lot of noise that, that, animals within those areas might still be exposed to stressors that can be affecting their um, you know, individual survival and reproduction and also population resilience. And so I think that those studies are really important right now and add a lot to our understanding of glucocorticoid physiology with potential applications for conservation and management as well.
0: Uh, That was a perfect note to end on, I think, (laughs) you know, kind of like a future outlook, some great research uh, to come out, you know, from what you're doing and from other people that are kind of studying the same thing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, your work has been fascinating. It's been really fun to talk to you. And um, you did bring in a song today for us. It's called Old Pine by Ben Howard. And you mentioned that this is one of your favorite
1: songs. It is one of my favorite songs. It reminds me so much of a lot of backpacking adventures I've had Um and so I hope your audience enjoyed it. And thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Boiling Point,
0: and we will see you next week with another science story. Oh, on toes, coats and in sleeping bags. I come to know the friends around me. Lord, he'll always have Spoken my lungs. Oh, the echoes, stone, careless and young, free as the birds that fly. Oh, the we stood steady as the stars in the woods. So happy, high in the warm. Ran true inside these bones We stood as steady as the stars in the woods So happy hearted in the war Rang true inside these bones As the old fell we sang